please join me in welcoming this evening's guest moderator, best-selling novelist and author of The Good German, Joe Cannon, and tonight's guest, about to be the New York Times number one best-selling author a week from Sunday, Eric Larson. Hi, the best-selling author to be is Eric. I am the moderator. And we're going to start with some questions. For anyone who has written about the Nazi era, or Berlin in 1933, which is the subject of Eric's book, this is 78 years ago, and that material is as compelling and relevant still today. But anyone who's, who writes about it faces this, uh, sooner or later, hindsight. There is going to be this real technical difficulty that I call the reader's sense of inevitability. We know what happened. We know how it ended. We know that it was a catastrophe for everyone. Eric has done an extraordinary thing. He not only confronts this problem, he has made it the subject of the book. This is what In the Garden of the Beast is about. How things actually happen in real time. We look back at the Nazi period and think it's sort of monolithic. Hitler becomes chancellor, and the next thing you know, it's Karadamarum. It didn't happen that way. It happened piecemeal, week by week, day by day. And that's very much the subject of this book. There is, the questions that always come up are, could it have happened otherwise? Could, we know that Hindenburg could have dismissed Hitler. We know that there could have been an international outrage. We know that there could have been popular unrest, but none of these things happened. Why not? In your introduction, or your foreword, you actually say, so I'll quote, the course of history would so easily have been changed during this period. Why then did no one change it? Why did it take so long to recognize the real danger posed by Hitler and his regime? I know this is a hard question. We've been asking it for 78 years, but that doesn't mean that we can't still ask it. So let's start with that. Why didn't it? <laughs> well, I, I wrote a whole book about that. So, uh, but you know, what it comes down to really is that it was a very complicated, very nuanced time when you know, you would think, well, for example, um, the consul general in Berlin, George Messerschmitt, who worked with William E. Dodd, who is, who is one of the two main characters. It's Dodd, the ambassador to Berlin, and, and Dodd's um, very wild daughter, Martha. But George Messerschmitt, the consul general, also plays a role. And one of the things that he writes uh, early on in 1933, he sends a, a, a confidential dispatch to Washington in which he says, Maybe the only solution to Hitler and the Nazi Party and, and the Third Reich is preemptive war. Preemptive war. This is in 1933, long before the war began. And you think about that. You know, that would have been the act that would have changed everything. But it was as impossible as anything. Roosevelt was locked in a stalemate, a political stalemate. His top priority was to um, get his New Deal legislation off the ground, drag the country out of the Depression, and any effort he had made even to criticize Germany in, in, a, in an aggressive way would have led the isolationists to completely oppose him on all things. So it was a political stalemate in this country. And that was, that was probably the main simple reason. 
But again, it was a very complicated, nuanced time. Right. That was the elephant in the room question. Everybody wants to know, could, we have, could it have been otherwise? But now onto something lighter. There are two major characters in this book. One is Ambassador Dodd himself, who is not a naive, but who nevertheless goes through a radicalization. He comes hoping to be open-minded, and a year later has become a real opponent of the Nazi regime. He has with him, along with his wife and son, his 24-year-old daughter, Martha. Martha is the juice of this story, if I can use that expression, and she's very much a Scarlett O'Hara figure, at least Scarlett as she was at the barbecue, surrounded by all of her flirtatious bows, and going fiddle-dee-dee, she would actually say on arrival in a letter to somebody, well, you know, the Nazi, we sort of don't like the Jews anyway. She was to feel very differently many years, a few years later, and she was to become a very different person. But when she was there, in the first few months, they arrive in July 1933, and I'm just going to put on my glasses because we want to get these names correctly. According to Eric, she had flirtations, and if you read between his lines, I assume they were sleeping flirtations, with at least the following people. This is just in the first few months. Ernst Udet, a flying ace from World War I. Putzi Hamstengel, who was married, by the way, and the foreign press chief. Later, floating through town, Thomas Wolfe, the novelist, and she had a fling. Meanwhile, Armand Berrin, the third secretary at the French embassy. Max Delbruck, who was a biophysicist, later to be a Nobel Prize winner. And much more seriously, an affair with Rudolf Diels, the married chief of the Gestapo at that time, and finally Boris Vinog Vinogradov, yes? yes, who was first secretary at the Soviet embassy and indeed an operative for the KNVD. Now, even in these promiscuous hookup times that we live in, that's a lot of names to have on your speed dial. That's a lot of guys, that's a lot of guys. My question is twofold. One... Why didn't she get pregnant? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Did her father never say anything? You as the father of daughters, I, I ask, not only as an author, but as a father. And more seriously, did the fact that he seems not to have done, and that other people did know about this, let's face it, embarrassing behavior, she is the daughter of the American ambassador, and she's sleeping with the head of the Gestapo, did this help to undermine his own credibility in Washington? You know, I don't think it undermined his credibility, but it does, it does raise questions about his willingness to, to see clearly. But, you know, he, he, Dodd, I give him credit because at this point his daughter is 24 years old. She is going through a divorce. Um, she has been engaged twice to be married. She's an independent, independent human being. He gave her a lot of rope. He gave her a lot of rope. In fact, the, the records at the Library of Congress of both Dodd and his daughter, um, Dodd's papers are surprisingly free of any censorious remark about Martha. Um, the papers of other diplomats are not thus free. People were chattering behind Dodd's back about Martha. But I think he simply treated her as the adult that she was, and I think also that I can tell you, I, as a father of three daughters, I don't know everything that they're doing, and I don't want to know everything that they're doing. And I think he was probably in the same boat. You also say that the embassy residency was 
a lot of rooms spread out over three floors and that the father and mother used to go to bed early? Is father and mother went to bed early, typically around 9-ish, 9.30, 10, something like that. And Martha used to stay up sometimes, sometimes until dawn, um, driving, through the, driving through the forests of Germany with her boyfriends. One of the things you did, by the way, in 1933 Berlin was you, if you wanted to have a truly private conversation, you either drove in your car in the countryside or you walked in the park, which is at the center of, of Berlin, the Tiergarten. And uh, that's to avoid uh, Gestapo surveillance. Right. It became a particularly, I think, poignant contrast because the father, who received much criticism for this from um, high-toned people in the diplomatic corps, had made a concerted effort to live very modestly. He had shipped over his beat-up Chevrolet instead of having a Mercedes town car or one of the limos that the other diplomats would have. He was meant to live within his budget. He was making a salary of 17500 a year, I think, which in 1933 was a good piece of change, but still, you didn't give lavish parties for 500 every week on it. And he was determined to live within his means. So the behavior, the sort of wild madcap, almost Carol Lombard-like you know, behavior of Martha seems in direct contrast to him. And I must say, gives the book a lot more fun than it would have <laughs> if it were just yeah. Dodd. Yeah, I, like Dodd set out, Dodd set out to, to prove something to the Nazi party, to, to the Germans, that you know, Roosevelt, when he, when he appointed Dodd ambassador to Berlin, com to Berlin, to Germany, completely out of the blue, uh, well, more or less out of the blue, they had, the job, by the way, had been vacant for about five months because nobody else wanted the job. Dodd was a mild-mannered professor at the University of Chicago who suddenly got this, this job offer at noon on a, on a day in June 1933, and Roosevelt gave him two hours to decide whether to do it. But one thing Roosevelt told him was that he wanted a standing... He wanted Dodd to serve as a, as, a, as a standing model of American liberal values. And Dodd took that quite literally, which is why he brought his beat-up old Chevrolet to Berlin, because he didn't feel he could live a rich, luxurious life um, while the rest of the world was suffering from the Depression. Um, and also he wanted to sort of make this point by, by demonstration to the Nazis that, that, that he was not going to do what other diplomats might have done, which is to sort of suck up to people like Goering and Goebbels and so forth and, and, and act the role of you know, the court dandy in Berlin. It was, let's go back just for a minute to the State Department. This is a story in which we anticipate that the Nazis are going to be troublesome if you're the American ambassador. What maybe does surprise us in reading it is that your bosses back stateside and colleagues are becoming equally troublesome and plotting against you. The State Department in those days, I hope very different from now, you'll have to say. I hope so. Was referred by one of their members as a pretty good club and the people in it tended to come from about three schools and one class in society. I think that most of you who will read this will be surprised, if not astonished, at the snobbery, at the very casual anti-Semitism that runs through all the communications and statements on the part of these people. Even after the 1934 purge, which is really the capstone of this story because it radicalizes Dodd, when Hitler's true colors are perfectly apparent to everybody, when the Berlin, em let me just see my note, when the Berlin embassy is sending memo after memo, not just Dodd's, 
about the danger here and the fact that this is something you need to pay attention to, what seems to concern everybody in Washington, above all other things, are the outstanding German debts to American creditors, in other words, the Wall Street banks. When they finally got rid of him, this is four years it took them, but they got him out. He was not one of theirs. He was called Ambassador Dud by some of them. His successor, Hugh Wilson, the very man who coined the phrase pretty good club, was a well-known appeaser who actually told the Nazis that the US press, quote, was Jewish controlled. The question, I suppose, is how much does it matter that they were snobbish anti-Semites in Washington? What effect does this, did the State Department really have, not only in Germany, but much more importantly, on our policy here? Did Roosevelt actually listen to them? I, th I think the anti-Semitism in the State Department really had a significant effect on U.S. policy, certainly towards, certainly towards um, Jewish um, refugees seeking to leave Germany. That's, that's for sure, because we're really talking about beneath the level of Secretary of State, we're talking about the top three guys in the State Department at the time were really pretty open about their anti-Semitism. One guy um, referred to Jews routinely as kikes. Um, their, their diaries are full of disparaging remarks about Jews, and these are the guys who were the architects of immigration policy. And that goes a long way to explain why in 1933, when 26,000 Jews could have come to America from Germany, only 1,500 did so. One of the rules that was put in place by these guys was that any Jewish person in Germany seeking to migrate to the United States had to go to the police to get a statement of character before they could fulfill all the requirements for a visa. So what you're asking is, you're asking a Jew who is desperate to get out of Berlin to go to the Gestapo and say, hey, I'd like to leave. Could you please you know, fill out some kind of a letter that says that I'm a good, I'm a good person, which is something that the Gestapo was not inclined necessarily to do. But beyond that, beyond that, um, you know, by, by running interference against Dodd, and they really, they really did make it difficult for Dodd to operate. They didn't like anything that he did that was remotely critical of the regime. Um, I, I think they really established a climate that made it hard for anybody to do anything, um, uh, anything constructive in terms of, of Hitler. It's also intriguing to think how much they're reflecting a general opinion in the country. I, we don't mean to linger on anti-Semitism, but after all, it is crucial to this story. Part of the hindsight that any reader brings to a study of 1933 is that we know the Holocaust happened. They didn't know it would happen in 1933, or at least didn't know its final form. However, when you read the book, you will probably be surprised, as most modern readers would be, at how strong anti-Semitism was just as an attitude in this country. We expect it in Germany, but how about here? In a 1930s poll, the era quotes, 41% of all recipients believed Jews had too much power in the United States. And fully 20% of them, one out of five, wanted to drive them out. Dunn himself casually refers to, with irony, the chosen race. This is just a phrase that he thinks has no resonance at all. And everyone accepts the fact that Germany has a, quote, Jewish problem. This became a question of great agonizing 
dilemma, an agonizing dilemma for the Jewish community in America, how far to push, how far to exert any influence to get some action, to get something done to save people. How many people needed saving? It was one of those questions that go back and forth. Dodd himself seems unaware of the fact that when he rents a house in Berlin, a huge mansion facing the park for $150 a month, that there may be some reason that all of this real estate is going begging because it's been confiscated. I think that his radicalization, what, and I use that term advisedly, what happens is, I mean, Martha talks about how beautiful and wonderful the Hitler youth are within a month of arriving. It's almost like the scene out of Cabaret, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Years later, she is to be, have very different ideas about this. Do you think that the kind of rampant anti-Semitism that one perceives in the country as a whole made it possible for the State Department to be as pig-headed about consular matters and indeed foreign policy as they were. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. I, th that element of the story really cannot be, you can't, I have to underscore how powerful that was, the sense of anti-Semitism in America. Um, the statistics you cited, happily only 13% today, <laughs> only 13% today would like, believe that Jews have too much power. That's still a significant percentage. But you know, to have that kind of level of anti-Semitism in that time was very, was very, very powerful. It colored everything, I think. And Dodd himself, Dodd himself has an astonishing meeting with Hitler um, where they're talking. This is his second formal meeting with Adolf Hitler. They're talking, and, and Dodd, the professor from Chicago, God bless him, tries to find common ground with Hitler on the so-called Jewish problem. So they talk, Dodd says, well, you know, we have a Jewish problem in America. We've tried to solve it in a more humane way. And they talk about that for a bit. Interestingly, Hitler doesn't, obviously doesn't buy it. He flies into a, 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 a wild rage. And this is in 1933, he tells Dodd, he says, if the Jews keep this up, I will put an end to all of them. This is in 1933. This is the first whiff of the Holocaust, which is not, does not begin for another six or seven years, not, at least not in, in earnest. So the whole anti-Semitism thing really colored everything, I think, at that time. And Dodd, Dodd was as, as much an anti-Semite as, as so many others in America were, and so was Martha at that time. It is, as we see in it, count after count, there is a reluctance to believe because such a thing seems to be unbelievable or beyond any kind of credibility. Another aspect just to, that's been hovering around this that I think very few people are aware of is just how fragile a hold on power the Nazis felt they had, particularly in these early years. This is one year in. Hitler becomes chancellor at the beginning of 33. They're very thin-skinned. They're very concerned what people think about them. And they're determined to have some kind of legalistic form of authority. Can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, how, how fragile was it really? Were they worried? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the interesting things that, that, well, I think it was very interesting and, and that actually surprised me, was, first of all, the, the extent of conflict within the Third Reich. We tend to think of it as, a, as this monolithic force, this, this absolute... And this absolute source of, of utter, absolute 
tyrannical power. But in that first year, um, first year or so of Hitler's rule, and the first full year that the Dodds are in Germany, which constitute the core, core of, of the book, there was a lot going on that suggested that, that, that <clears throat> the power that the, the party held over Germany was not all that people imagined it to be. For one thing, and this, this really did surprise me, because I, 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 happily I came to this with, with a certain amount of knowledge, but as it turns out, a very limited amount of knowledge about this, this one year, and so I was surprised at every turn. One thing was that there was, there was the, one thing that surprised me was the depth of conflict within Hitler's government, two opposing forces. Um, Hitler's hold on power was by no means, um, by no means firm in that first year, and that ultimately is what led to the climactic event in the book, the Great Purge of June 30, 1934, which not only changed things forever, arguably that was the moment that, that everything was sort of set in motion for all that was yet to come. Um, but it also changed the characters. I mean, that's when, that was the climactic moment that caused major transformation in, in my, my two, two main actors. But it was that level of conflict that when you look back with, with hindsight, you think, wow, couldn't we have done something? Couldn't we have just, you know, if, if Roosevelt had dared to say anything at that time, could we have, could we have changed the course of history? Again, Roosevelt felt he couldn't say anything at that time. And we didn't. And we didn't. We didn't say anything. So what we have is this story instead. One, just sliding away to a lighter aspect of this. One of the things that also intrigued me about the book is how very social the world of diplomacy was. It was practically in Berlin's nightlife in the 30s as opposed to the 20s when there was a huge nightclub scene. In the 30s, a lot of it did focus on various embassy receptions, uh, who got invited to what soiree, etc. It was a little bit, in fact, like Paris after the war, where Duff Cooper and Diana Cooper held sway over the Parisian society. Is it still the case that American ambassadors pay for these parties themselves? I mean, do we now fund them? <laughs> yeah, I, I think to an extent, I, I'm actually not that up on contemporary ambassadors and so forth, um, but my, my sense is that they make a whole lot more money than they used to. But I believe that the, the richer the ambassador, the lusher the party still to this day. In this era, though, that I'm writing about, <clears throat> it was the case that, um, that, you know, unless you had an independent income, you really could not live terribly lavishly and you couldn't throw the kind of parties necessarily that that you know your peer, your peers in other governments were throwing. Dodd did his best. Dodd, Dodd, the frugal frugal Jeffersonian Democrat. He he felt uh, he once said that he would proudly that he could throw an entire banquet with a single bottle of gin. So that was his that was his approach to to all this. Um, today I, I can't say I can't say. It just seems to be less central, I think, to the it is social life of the yeah. capital cities than it used to be. But the social, the social life was very was fascinating to me. For one thing, you know, you, you have to go back to 1933, and again, this is the, the whole purpose of this is to take a look at what people were actually doing, what they were seeing and experiencing. I was really startled to find that, for example, Josef Goebbels, who we all know to be one of the great monsters of the Third Reich, he was a coveted party guest. He was a coveted party guest because he had a terrific sense of humor. It was a vicious sense of humor, but he had a terrific sense of humor. Hermann Goering was considered one of the best men of the Third Reich because, as one correspondent put it, you could at least be in the same room with him without being repulsed. 
Um, so there were, these people were interacting on a social level with people like the Dodds and other diplomats in a way that I think is very surprising, very surprising. There is, by the way, for those of you who haven't seen it, a truly wonderful, campy picture of Goering's bedroom at Karinhal, his country estate, with a really interesting painting over the bed. Yeah, yeah, it's fairly, <clears throat> fairly it's, it, it's a graphic, um, quite graphic nude right over his bed at Karinhal, which is this, is this very, is this very interesting estate that he's got in the countryside um, devoted nominally to, well, in theory, devoted to his dead wife, Karen, who died in Sweden. Um, but it's this vast estate um, where he presides over it like some, some very fat boy prince. And, and one, thing, one thing about Goering was that, that he, he loved to devise, he loved to devise uniforms. Um, and he was constantly inventing some new creation for himself. You know, he would look at one moment like a gargantuan wood sprite, you know, with a gigantic hunting knife. And the next he'd be resplendent in a, in a holy, holy white uniform, just absolutely gleaming with, with you know, linen and, and, and fatness. Um, and there's a, a marvelous scene where he has all the diplomats come to Karen Hall um, to witness the mating of two bison. And it's, it's a moment that, that underscored the idea that the, that the Third Reich was not necessarily something that one had to take seriously. And that's how Dodd felt. Dodd felt that Hitler and the Third Reich could not possibly last because they were just too ridiculous. And that was a commonly held view in 33-34 until the events of June 30, 1934. Right. One of the things I think people are always interested in is the actual research involved in doing a book when I wrote a book about Berlin, I was lucky it was set post-war, and by definition, every scene in the book had survived the bombing, or otherwise it wouldn't be there. You were not so lucky. 27A, Tiergartstrasse is gone, etc. How, how did you work it in Berlin? Did you go to the sites? Did you walk it out? Yeah, one of my goals in Berlin was simply to find all the locations, see what was there. I did not expect much because you know, the Russian assault of 1945 pretty much obliterated the area in Berlin where most of the action in the book takes place, the area around the Tiergarten. But I did find I, I, there are some, some surprising things that remain that you would have expected would have been obliterated along with everything else. For example, Goering's Air Ministry building survived the assault. Um, the Bendler block, Army High Command, survived survived the assault. A lot of other things did not. The house where the Dodds lived, it's now still, believe it or not, a, a vacant lot behind, a, behind a, a high fence. But I had one little bit of, of terrific luck. I had, I, had arrived, I had arrived in Berlin in February. You may ask why one would go to Berlin in February. And that's a very good question, because it was cold. Horizontal snow, the whole deal. So my first morning, I was jet lagged. I decided I'm just going to try to find one or two addresses and consider it, you know, call it a day. So I left my hotel, took a ride, took another ride, and I'm walking along a street, Bellevue Strasse. I was looking, one of the places I wanted to find was a place called the Hotel Esplanade, which is where, it was a very famous hotel at one time in Berlin. It's where the Dodds first stayed. And I was certain there would be nothing left of this place. So I'm walking along Berlin, and anybody who's been there knows that there's this gigantic 
complex called the Sony Center. So I was walking along on the street outside the Sony Center, on, along Bellevue-Strasse. Suddenly, I realized that next to me was this, was this five-story wall of glass, behind which was the bullet-pocked facade of a very old building. So I was like, whoa, what is this? It looked like something preserved in a museum. Well, it was a gigantic, a gigantic structure, and, and it was surrounded by swank apartments, like this side. The industrious Germans had built a bridge deck over this facade and built five stories of swank apartments above it, but here behind glass was the five-story facade of this structure. So I walked to the nearest information plaque, and much to my surprise, it was the Hotel Esplanade. The facade of the Hotel Esplanade is preserved, nothing else, but the facade of that hotel is right there, right on that street. It was an amazing moment for me because I could just sort of imagine Martha racing off for her tryst with Rudolf Diels at Gestapo headquarters a few blocks away, or, or Dodd setting off to his office along the park. It was just a very interesting time. But mostly I relied on memoirs and, 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 uh, and, and actually period maps, period photographs, and so forth of, of, of Berlin at that time. It is, for those of you who go as tourists even now, Hey, it's always been an interesting city, and it remains so. But from the historical point of view, anything you see in the very center is likely to have been reconstructed and Disneyfied. Yeah. It was just completely wiped out, including all the linden on Unter der Linden that burned under the bombing, etc. You know, I've been rattling on, but I think we should turn it over to yeah. you and yeah. see what you would like be interested in. Uh, is there anything in the book about um, d discussions with the military? Because the military was probably the only force in Germany that could have stopped Hitler. Yes, that's a big part of the book, is, is, is the, role, the role that the regular army played. You're talking about the regular army and not the stormtroopers. There were essentially two, two military forces at play in 1933-34 in Germany. And that's a, again, that's a big part of the story. One is the regular army which at this point had about 100,000 men. Think about that, that's 100,000 men in the regular army in Germany at this point. The stormtroopers had, depending on what time period you're looking at, anywhere from a million to two million men conscripted, not conscripted, but part of this quasi-formal para paramilitary force. But it was the regular army that was the best equipped that could have and, and very nearly did step in to, to change things. But there was a very interesting deal that was worked out. And that's a kind of an interesting part of the book. I don't want to give it away. But they were essentially neutralized in the course of this first year through a political deal. So yes, there's a lot on that in, in the book. Fourth row, right in front of you. Yeah, um, I was curious how, how you came to the, the characters of Dodd and Martha. When, sure. when did that sort of crystallize that this was going to be your sort of central characters? Yeah, that's a good question. You know. The way this started for me, I, I, frankly, I, I, to this day, I'm a little surprised that I actually took on a book about Nazi Germany. I mean, my, all my other books, my other best-selling books were set in or around 1900, you know, so this is a major departure for me. But one day, this is, goes back to August five or six years ago, I was, I, was looking, I was looking for an idea for my next book. And that's a very hard time for me because when I finish a book, I have no ideas that I immediately can go on to. I don't know why that is. I always start with a blank slate. My publicist calls it the dark country of no ideas. And I was in that dark country. I, I was trying to find something to write about. And I just decided I was going to follow the advice that I give to writers when I do, on, on rare occasions when I do teach. And that is, 
to read promiscuously and voraciously. So I just went to a bookstore, started looking at books to see in the history section of this bookstore, just to see what appealed to me, what didn't. And I saw a book sitting there face out that I'd always intended to read, but it was always too intimidating to read. It was, it was uh, 1,200 pages, tiny type, no photographs. Some of you are thinking it's the Bible. It was, it was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shear. I started to read the book, and I realized, um, probably maybe I'm slow about this stuff, but I realized about a third of the way through that William Shear, the author, had actually been there in Berlin um, from 1934 on. And I thought, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to try to write about what that was like to actually have been there, to, to see the world through the eyes of those who were there at the time, at the time when people did not know what the ending was, as we all do. And so then I quite deliberately started searching for characters. I started reading the big histories, the, 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 the small, small, the intimate histories, the personal memoirs and so forth. And I came across a diary, the published diary of William E. Dodd. Read that, I found it very interesting. Still wasn't totally hooked on the idea, but then I came across the memoir of his daughter. And as soon as I realized that when she came to Berlin, she fell in love with the so-called Nazi revolution. When I realized that, I thought, these are going to be some very interesting characters because they kind of show how, in microcosm, how the world treated Hitler at this time. So that's how it began. And just the, just the idea that these two characters, I would not want to have written just about Dodd. I would not want to have written just about Martha. Um, but together, they said something very interesting about the world at that time, or so I, so I felt. Fourth row at the end here. Yeah, I was wondering in uh, Europe, <clears throat> with the, uh, the extent to which the Great War may have really colored other nations' hesitance to really challenge it, because there you had such a slaughter and so many countries that rushed headfirst into war. Yeah, the Great War, the Great War um, was a, a big part of the picture. That was a big reason why the isolationists, isolationists in America were so powerful. Obviously, for Britain, which lost a generation of young men, the idea of trying to, uh, the idea of entering entering hostilities on any level at that point was was absolutely was absolutely uh, uh, atrocious. So yes, that th that was that was a huge part of what colored how the world responded as well to 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 Hitler. And incidentally, I'm I'm really glad you called it the Great War. Because one of the things that I, we talked about hindsight, one of the things that I really tried to do in this book is to constantly maintain what people in cinema, people in, in literature classes refer to as POV, point of view. And anybody who reads the book will find that I never refer to the previous war as World War I, because obviously in 1933 there was no World War II yet. All there was was the Great War, the previous war, the past war. And that's, that's an important part of the story is just to realize just to realize what people actually knew and saw at the time. I think just as an addition to that, that in the book what becomes very clear is that domestic politics becomes so very important in the countries that might have caused a fuss. This is 1933, it's absolutely the depths of the depression. FDR's first concern is putting people to work, giving people something to eat, not necessarily sorting out foreign politics. And we tend to forget that the Depression happened in Britain and France as well. Not only did they lose... And Germany. And Germany. Not only had they lost millions of people, they were now poor. 
everyone just wanted this to go away. Everybody did want it to go away. Yeah, it, all these forces were at work, and Hitler just brilliantly capitalized on them to make his, to make his way. Front row. Uh, you said that uh, no, nobody really of any caliber wanted to be ambassador to Germany. I would have thought that Germany would be a, a fascinating place at the time and a very important place to be a representative in. Why is, why is that so? Well, I think you hit on something that's very important. At this point, at this point in time, Berlin was, uh, I argue in the book, Berlin was perceived as nothing like what it became even within the, f the next year or two. Berlin was perceived, I don't want to call it a minor irritant, but it, it was not, it was not treated as as a serious. Germany, Hitler were not treated as a serious problem as yet, and I think in fact, Dodd's appointment is one indication of that. Because here was this mild-mannered reporter, no uh, reporter, mild-mannered professor with no diplomatic training whatsoever, who is offered what we would ordinarily expect to be a plum job. But in fact, one reason he was offered the job is because everybody else turned it down. At least nine other people were considered and or offered this job and turned it down. The job had been vacant for five months. So I think that's an interesting part of the story. And again, as, as Joe mentioned, one of the things that the, the, the top priority of the State Department was not Hitler, was not fear of war or anything like that. It was getting Germany to repay its billion dollar debt to US creditors. That's all they cared about. That was their primary, their primary motive. So you're quite right. It's a mystery, um, but I think that that helps explain it. Second row. Um, considering that, do you think it changed anything in the in the way that the United States uh, developed policy from then on? Well, if you mean in terms of uh, in terms of our willingness to intervene, um, I mean, I, I think obviously we've we've seen in recent years a definite tendency in that direction toward preemptive intervention. Um, but I don't think I don't know. What do you think? Do you think World War II and 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 this era had much to do with that? The idea that we could have stopped it? I, I don't I don't know. I think that what happens is that the Nazis, or Nazi Germany, uh, now is used by all ends of the political spectrum, from the left to the right, to justify whatever it is we really want to say in contemporary terms. History may repeat itself in general, but it also is very specific. And I, to me, World War II is the pivotal event of the century. I think everything before and everything after are very, very different, certainly for America. And by the time 1945 rolls around, we look at the world in very different eye, with very different eyes than we did in 1933, and we act accordingly. But I don't think that it's because we took a lesson from, gee, if we had only acted sensibly in time early enough, all of this might have been prevented. Is there any character in the German leadership who's a little more sympathetic or a little less, uh, you know, sort of... Um, totally uh, negative? Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, again, in this period, this very complex period, there was, for example, the foreign minister von Neurath, who was a holdover, essentially, from the Weimar era. Um, Hitler, um, one school of thought says that Hitler deliberately kept him as foreign minister because he was more palatable to, to outsiders. Von Neurath did not like Hitler. He did not like the Third Reich. One of his friends once said that 
one of his one of his wishes was that one day he would wake up and find Hitler gone. So there was him. Another very complex character is this very first chief of the Gestapo, Rudolf Diels. And I have to emphasize he was the very first chief of the then brand new Gestapo. He held the job essentially for one year until he was replaced by Himmler, who then brought in his protege, um, Reinhard Heydrich, Heydrich, who was the, those guys were wholly evil. Rudolf Diels was a very complicated character. He was not a member of the Nazi party. The diplomatic community believed that he had a certain amount of moral integrity. He was the go-to guy if one of your foreign nationals got locked up. He was the man you went to to help get him out. Um, and interestingly, after the war, he testified for the prosecution against the Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg. So he was a complicated character. The president of the Reichsbank, uh, Schacht, he was, uh, he was also considered one of the better men, and, and actually, interestingly, he was, the, he, was the guy, he was the guy that Mrs. Dodd, uh, Ambassador Dodd's wife, Mrs. Dodd always could count on uh, to come to a party in case somebody canceled out. You could always call Schacht and he'd come to the party. This is, this is the, one of the senior, senior members of the, of the Third Reich. And he, too, was, was more level-headed and, and, and less... He, he definitely was not the ardent Nazi we, we kind of have come to, to expect. How do you see the technological advances that the Germans had compared to the rest of the world in the late 30s into the early 40s, such as weapons, technologies, especially the jet engine, yeah. and how that transcended into our space and aeronautic campaigns such as NASA? You know, you're out of my, my realm there. I mean, probably Joe can address that, that better. Um, I, I, have to, I have to say my, my focus was exclusively in this very early period, 33, 34, and some afterwards until Dodd ultimately left in uh, December of 1937, and then some activity of Dodd's afterwards. I don't get into the war really at all, or the technology of the war, or jet engine, and so forth. But you're looking at the guy here who wrote Los Alamos and the good German, and you know, if you want technology, Joe's the guy. Which we won't go into today, but I'll just tell you this much. In 1945, in what would then be the Soviet zone, once everything was settled, Middelwerk, where they were making the V-2 rockets in a slave labor camp, the Americans luckily got there, luckily for them, got there first and hauled away by truck and by railway cars 27 tons of documents, blueprints. Our entire space program was based on everything the Germans had started. I mean, this is widely acknowledged and freely acknowledged. I think that the race to capture the, Soviet, the German scientists is one of the great stories, and Eric and I, in fact, were talking about that before. But it's not what happened in 1933. And in 1933, they were just rearming. We're talking about a very <coughs> primitive early stage in yeah. what happened. And interestingly, <coughs> little known fact, interestingly, the, the, uh, the Goering was, it was an open secret, but he was secretly building the Luftwaffe at this point. And uh, the Germans were buying um, airplane engines, Pratt and Whitney airplane engines from America. This is how they were establishing their, their initial air force. So that's one little technological, little technological detail. But everybody, at the, there was no, I wouldn't say in 33, 34 that, that German military prowess was particularly advanced technologically. They were interested in rearming, but not so much in 
and, and well, they were developing aircraft at this point. It was beginning to, they were thinking in those terms, but, but it's not really relevant at this point. Uh, you talked about how the State Department uh, was anti-Semitic at that point, and the top three guys. The top three guys. What I'm addressing specifically, but yes. Okay, yes. and uh, how they perceived that uh, the media was controlled by Jews at that point. Was there an adversarial relationship between the State Department and the American media, and how did that filter down in terms of the early American perception of what was going on in Germany? I'm not sure I can really address that specific question, whether, whether there was an adversarial relationship between the State Department and the media. What I can tell you is what I came across, which is that the State Department was routinely feeding the media the stories that the State Department wanted to disclose, which also, which plays, is important in the book because it plays a part in the ultimate conspiracy, I think it's fair to use that term, the ultimate conspiracy against Dodd by elements of the State Department. This, this persistent feeding of leaks to columnists and so forth. That's really all I can, I can speak to. It might also be fair to say that I think the State Department and everybody's State Department never wants the press to report anything except what they want them to report. Exactly. So some things never change. Indeed. Yeah. Was that the last or is there one more? Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's thank been a you. real pleasure. Thanks.